correct the record in the interest of historical accuracy. Uh, vinyl. Um, this, is, this is the 11th year that we are uh, here at Stone Chapel on Christmas Eve because we moved here uh, in December of 2005. And since most of those years, we uh, also had a, an 11 o'clock service. We actually are closer to 20 by the time this is done, and I know that uh, many of you are just waiting for that to happen. So uh, let me get on with things here. So one of the things that has been awesome for me this year is that I got, in the spring, I got to take a class on Anglo-Saxon spirituality. And uh, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the genre, basically imagine Gimli from The Lord of the Rings at church. And that's basically the feel of this stuff. And there's this great collection of poems, some sometimes known as uh, Christ A, sometimes known as the Advent Lyrics, but I've been hanging out with these a lot. One of them reads, Have mercy on your servants and consider our miseries, how we totter with a tired spirit, move wretchedly about. Come now, King of heroes, do not delay too long. We have need of mercies that you free us and faithfully give us the healthful gift that ever after we may always thrive in the thing that prospers among the people, your will. Joe devised a great series for Advent this year called Anticipate. We talked in the first week with Kendall, talked about anticipating renewal, and Ron talked about anticipating calling. Joe talked about anticipating kingdom and repentance, and tonight we talk about anticipating gospel. To anticipate, of course, is to wait expectantly for something that is not there yet, right? Obviously, if it were there, you wouldn't have to wait for it. You're waiting for a time when things will be different from how they are now, right? I mean, if it's not going to make a difference, there's really no point anticipating it. But when we anticipate, we anticipate things being different in a time in a, or in, a, in a, at least in a place and in a context where things are also going to remain the same, right? I mean, those of you who are eagerly anticipating what you may find under the tree tomorrow morning are probably going to go to bed in the same place with the same people and you're going to have dinner with many of the same people that you ordinarily have dinner with, maybe with some others, maybe you'll be doing it somewhere else, but life will be different in some ways, but life is going to be similar in a whole lot of others. And basically, I think the most important thing for us to get in understanding the Christmas story, really it's understanding the gospel as a whole, is that it's about things being completely different and also being the same. The theologians talk about continuity and discontinuity, and I think we have to remember, if we're going to make any sense of this story, we have to remember that 
God coming in flesh, taking on our very humanity, is something completely different. When, when Jesus lived and died as one of us and then rose again as we once will, that's completely different. Things were different after that than they were before. Yet at the same time, a whole lot of things were the same. Our text tonight in Luke's gospel is all about this continuity and discontinuity. We're actually backing up a little bit from the Christmas story. Anybody, any of the kids tell me who, who was born before Jesus? Not Mr. Kevin. Who, who else was born before Jesus? Yes, Kara. Kara, what a surprise. Kara has the answer. Yes? John the Baptist. Yeah, that's actually where Luke starts his gospel. Luke doesn't start his story with Jesus. I mean, with Matthew, he basically fires it up right away with Jesus, so did Mark and Luke and John. But, but Luke, after he kind of clears his throat, he says, now in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, and his wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So this is a, a priest of, of good vintage, good lineage, Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both, like Mr. Kevin, well along in years. And once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So only some people got to be priests, only some of the priests got to serve, and you, had, you got to serve when your, your uh, time was, was there, your allotted scheduled time. And then some of the people who were scheduled got to have special privileges like going in to burn incense. So this basically was like the peak of Zechariah's career as a priest. I mean, it really didn't, didn't get any better than this. He got to go and burn incense in the temple of Yahweh. And so When the time came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside while he was inside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, which was inside the temple there in Jerusalem. And when Zechariah saw him, like everybody else in the Bible who ever sees an angel, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth, and many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, well, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is of a certain age. The angel answered, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now, because you did not 
respond the way you could have, you will be silent. You will be unable to speak until the day this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at the proper time. And sure enough, the people were waiting for Zechariah, wondering what was going to take him so long. I mean, the burning of the incense was a big deal, but it didn't take all day. And when he came out, he couldn't speak. They realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but because sign language had not yet been invented, they didn't understand what he was saying. And when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord's done this for me, she said. In these days, he's shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is how Luke starts his story. Not with Jesus dropping in as though from a helicopter as Santa will be doing other places. Luke starts his gospel with the parents of, in many ways, the last prophet in the line of the Old Testament prophets. And so, nine months later, after Zechariah, after John is born and Zechariah's tongue is finally loosed, having for nine months been composing this remarkable psalm in his head. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and he has redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he said in his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet to the path of peace. This text is all about both continuity and discontinuity, isn't it? I mean, look at all the stuff that's that's the same before and after as Zechariah's singing this. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. The first thing, it's the same God. It's the same people. He's the same God who's the God of the same people, Israel. And he's raised up this horn of salvation for them in the house of his servant David. Same, same king, same royal lineage. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, this is the same promise. This is the same God making the same promises to his same people through his prophets who have that same vocation. And he's showing mercy to our fathers, remembering his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. It's the same covenant, and it's the same 
patriarchs of that family, of that people. Keith was telling me as, as he and his family were reading the gospel stories last week that they were just struck by how often Abraham shows up in these. And you wonder, what's Abraham doing? I mean, almost as much time passed between Abraham and Jesus as has passed from Jesus till now. Truth is that Abraham is the Old Testament character who shows up more than any other in the New Testament. Why? Because the authors of the New Testament want to make sure we know that this is a continuation of the story that God was writing in and through His people. This is not something completely brand new and disconnected with what came before. But in fact, God is being faithful to His promises. He is fulfilling His covenant. He is coming through on what He said to Abraham when He said that I will make your name great and I will bring about a great nation through you through your seed, and in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Because it's the same people and it's the same house and the same promise, same patriarchs and covenants, same God, but it's also the same mission. What does Zechariah say in 74 and 75? He says, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. The kind of salvation that Zechariah is talking about, the kind of deliverance, the kind of rescue Zechariah is talking about isn't just a rescue from, but it's a rescue for. It's salvation from our enemies, from the hands of those who hate us. But the point is, not just to get saved from, but to be saved so that we may be able to serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. John is going to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This is of course, one of those enemies from which God's people need to be rescued. But here's the interesting part. Right at the end, Abraham, or Zechariah says, because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. What Zechariah is evoking there, of course, is Isaiah's prophecy. But Isaiah's prophecy is of a light to whom? Not to Jesus, the light to, to the nations. A light to the Gentiles. So the rising sun is coming from heaven to God's people, to Israel. But it's not just for Israel. It's a light to all. And see what's different in this text. Really, the one big difference is the state of the enemies. When Zechariah says he's raised up a horn of salvation to save us from our enemies. 
He's envisioning the situation where the people are saved. And some of those enemies are no longer able to oppress God's people because they're defeated. The prophets make no bones about this, whether you're reading in Zechariah, you're reading as we all do so fondly in Ezekiel, or whether you're reading in, in Amos or Joel, or, or whether you're reading Revelation. At the end, God's enemies are decisively defeated. Those who come against him will ultimately lose. But the other way that God deals with his enemies, other than defeating them, if they're still stubbornly going to come against him and against his people, the other way God delivers his people from their enemies is by making their enemies their friends. And that is what Zechariah was talking about. We talked about the rising sun shining on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death. When he says, and guide our feet into the path of peace, really there he's talking about not only the feet of his people who have been waiting all along, anticipating this good news of their salvation, their deliverance, their rescue, but the our feet also includes those enemies who have been made friends. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Ephesians. He says, you've got to remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, you who were not Jewish, you're called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenant of the promise. And because of that, you were without hope and you were without God in the world. But now, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace He's, just, he's made the two one. He's de destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile by abolishing in his flesh Torah with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to those who were near and to those of you who were far away. For through him we both have access. We both, Jew and Gentile alike, have access to the Father by one Spirit. So consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Think about the significance of that for a moment. You used to be excluded. It used to be you weren't let in. It used to be you couldn't be part of the club. It used to be that if you knocked on the door, you would be turned away. You didn't belong. But now, you're no longer somebody who doesn't belong, 
You're no longer somebody who's not the right sort. You're no longer somebody who doesn't have what it takes to get in. Now, you are fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household. That household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as his chief cornerstone. In him, that whole building is joined together. It rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the gospel. This is the good news that was being anticipated. But it's even better. It's even gooder news than that which Zechariah probably had in mind. I think when Zechariah saw the full scope of what he had talked about in his song, I think he was blown away. I think he was surprised. And pleasantly so. That God has not only come to redeem his people, not only to rescue those who are his, but that he has opened up this offer of rescue beyond just his people. He's offered, opened up that offer of rescue, of redemption, of deliverance to everybody. And he's offered that up through Jesus. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's why we make such a big deal of this holiday. That's what's different. That's what's different after than before. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, as people who live on the other side of that event of your life, your death, your resurrection. And as people, some of whom were among your people Israel, but most of whom were not, most of whom were in fact foreigners and aliens, were people who didn't belong, were people who couldn't get in. But as people who all of us together have been rescued from our enemies. We pray that we would be people who live out the reality of that rescue, of that deliverance, of that salvation. We pray that we would embrace both the way in which the story we're part of now is part of the story you have been writing for thousands of years, not least through your servant Abraham faithful people who lived before you, but that would also recognize our place in the story and embrace that as people who live on the other side of something that was new, that was different, that made things so that they couldn't be the way they were before. Pray that as we work out this tension, as we live into this tension between what is continuous and what is discontinuous, what's the same and what's different, we pray that we would embrace those things that you call us to, and that we would joyfully leave behind those things that you call us to leave behind. 
pray most of all that we would do so with deep gratitude for you, Lord, because it's by the forgiveness of new life that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, who, though being in very nature God, didn't consider that something that he would clutch onto, but he instead took on the form 